Hi, Mark. Hello, Jean. I am so delighted to welcome you to this conversation. This is Mark Hayes, whom I met many moons ago at the Center for Healing of Racism. Our paths crossed several times since then and until one day we both ended up at the same diversity initiative at a company. As I was thinking about who I would like to invite for these interviews, Mark immediately came to mind as one of my top choices. And so here we are. <laughs> Mark holds a bachelor's degree in psychology, a master's degree in education slash counseling. And he took 30 hours of history from Texas Southern University just because he wanted to. <laughs> he has served as an organizational consultant for many years, specializing in leadership change management, relationship and engagement, and inclusion and equity work. That's a lot of expertise. So Mark, thank you for being here and agreeing to this interview. I am so excited about it and know that your comments will be impactful. So let's begin. I want people listening to understand how you came to be and who you are and why you're committed to anti-racism and social justice. So first, let's hear about your background. Did you grow up in a suburban, a suburban, a rural community? What's your earliest memory about race? Just set the stage for us. Sure. Well, first, I'm honored that you think I have something of value to deliver. Uh, our relationship, as you said, goes back a long ways, and I, I so respect you. So. Let's see what happens with this. Uh, I was an only child, grew up in Kansas City, Kansas. My parents uh, were very different. My father, the, the thing they had in common was they both, what shaped them as I came into the world was having gone through the Depression and World War II. We lived in one of those... Uh, small communities that was like a tract homes that were built for people coming home from the service that could get good loans. So knew all the people on our street close with folks there. And that was in a suburban area of Kansas City, a little town called Merriam, which was not too far from the outskirts of the actual downtown area of Kansas City. But Okay, so what was the racial background and what what's your earliest memory about race? Right. So European-American, very definitely. Uh, and, and I didn't know about my heritage, uh, ethnicity, really, until years after my parents had passed. For some reason, that wasn't a conversation they wanted to have or were comfortable with having. I, didn't, I wouldn't even have known what ethnicity was, probably as a young child then, or, or what, how to identify myself. But in terms of African-American, people who are Black, Latinx, those kinds of things that wasn't in our world. And, you know, maybe seven, eight years old probably was the first time I was aware of that enough as, as something out there <clears throat> that looked different than me. Well, what happened? Do you remember it? Yeah, the sports. Uh, as I got old enough, seven, eight to 
to go to ball games and things like that. There was a baseball team in Kansas City at the time, Kansas City Athletics, which later became the Elton Athletics. My dad was a traveling salesman who worked for a company that had season tickets to the, excuse me, to the baseball games. And the team was so bad that whenever my dad was in town, we could get tickets. So started going to the baseball games and, you know, Jackie Robinson had broken the color barrier much earlier in baseball than other sports did the same. So there were some black players on the teams watching how my parents uh, saw those players on the team no differently than they seemed to see the other athletes out there who were white. The, the really confusing part of this was to get to the baseball park from our home was uh, a drive through the part of town that was African-American, which I'd never seen before until we started going to the baseball games. When we would leave, get in the car to go to the game, uh, my father would take the baseball bat that I used to practice with, either that or get the tire iron out of the trunk of the car. And he put that on the seat between him and my mother. I was in the back seat when we'd leave the house, The windows were down, you know, summertime in Kansas City. Windows were down, a lot of conversation, excitement about the game. So as we're driving, you know, conversation, the radio's playing, we would get to a certain point (laughs) and literally across the railroad tracks that would start the black part of town. As, As we got close to the railroad tracks, my father turned to my mother and then would look at me in the rearview mirror and say, okay, he turned the radio off, asked us to roll the windows up, and he asked me to lay down on the on the floorboard in, in, on the, in the back of the front seat of the car and said, this is an area that, that people can hurt you. They'll do things to you. I want to make sure nothing happens to you, So, and I don't want you to see anything that might scare you. So I want you laying down, face down back there. I'll let you know when it's okay for you to come up. And when we got through that, which was just about the time we would get to the ballpark, uh, he'd say, okay. And we'd roll the windows down a bit to the air that let the car air back out, uh, turn the radio back on to hear any announcements that they were doing on the ball game and stuff as we were driving in. So, so that was my first introduction to people who were very different from me, according to my family. And, and the, the thing I th- that was consistent with my parents they didn't teach hate, they taught fear. I see that. And that was probably one of my saving graces because I could test to see whether the fear was necessary or not. And and as I had more contact with people, then that became pretty easy to dispel. These were not people that were itching to hurt me or take something from me. They seemed like me. So that, that was my starting point. For race. My parents used the N-word all the time. Oh, they did? It, yes. Yeah, the, the, it was not Negro. It was not Black people. It was not anything else. It was the N-word. So it, at times, if I'm referencing them, uh, I'll, I'll say Black, but that's not what was coming from them. And I, I don't know, Gene, you know, what, what's the area? Well, Kansas was very interesting on education after World War II, after uh, the Civil War. On the one hand, you had the N-word and you had 
lying face down in the floorboard when you're passing right. certain areas. On the other hand, you didn't notice anything difference in how your parents felt towards the players. Basically, right, right. is that right? And so, Correct. so you got two different messages. Absolutely. And very consistent. And again, where I live, Kansas. So two of the greatest players in the history of their supports came through University of Kansas. So Will Chamberlain went to the University of, of Kansas and Gail Sayers went to the University of Kansas. So one of the things that my father would <clears throat> excuse me, do through his company is whenever there were, where it was a game, that we could access either at Lawrence, Kansas, or in, if the teams were in Kansas City for some exhibition games or holiday games, things like that, then he would get us tickets to make sure we could go see Will Chamberlain and Gail Sayers. Wow. So, uh, you know, very mixed messages uh, there. And, and, and I think a lot of what I learned from my parents was that there were things in there that drove them and that, they weren't honest with me off there. Oftentimes they were not honest with me that were very visible. And so I looked for competing evidence essentially to make sure what I was hearing from them was accurate rather than just taking that at heart, even though, even though they were my parents. Wow. So you learned critical consciousness at a yeah. early age. Yeah. How old did you make? Do you remember when you first decided to do this? So, again, a bit of a story. Again, my father traveled. So when I got to do things with him when he was home, it usually were sports-related. But there, And I'd done something to get in trouble. But my father uh, left enough time between when he had fussed with me about that to think maybe I'd gotten by with that and said, you know, you've been asking for the new ping-pong paddle because you need one that better fits your hands. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you one. I was going, wow, you're going to do that? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And so he, he measured my hand, but then he measured my bottom as well. And I was going, what has that got to do with me using the paddle? And called me down about to the, to the basement about an hour later and said he had the paddle ready for me. And then started angrily telling me what I'd done that he'd been very unhappy with me about and he used the supposed ping pong paddle that he made for me to spank me on my butt with and said, how does that fit? So were, that was the most physical thing that my parents did to me that I thought was out of bounds. But, but that uh, way of, of not being truthful with me about things, making stories fit a situation that I was in to lead me to their way of thinking versus uh, let me use my own judgment. Right. Yeah. So let's fast forward to yeah. the first black person you met. Do you remember that? The first black person that I actually met in, in a way to talk and exchange conversations with and things like that wasn't until... Uh, we left Kansas City. The schools that I went to in, in, in the suburbs were all totally white. There was no, uh, by that time, Kansas had some relaxation of uh, segregation rules, but you know, it was de facto segregation by where you live, what school district you were in, all that kind of stuff. So really just totally 
virgin territory until my father was transferred from his job in Kansas City with the company he worked for to developing a new territory in Arkansas and uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, and in that area. So we moved to a small town in Arkansas, about 50 miles north of North Little Rock, called Searcy, Arkansas. Town of 8,000 people, very much a, a diverse population between white and black, heavier on white, but, but a lot of black folks there. My start of my uh, junior year of high school, and then the school was desegregated my senior year. And so the first morning of going into school with the new students who were African-American coming in was my first exposure to that kind of close contact with folks. My father and mother sat at the breakfast table that morning and gave me a lecture before I went to school about how to defend myself. I won't get into particulars of that, but I was just looking at them like, uh, this isn't necessary. And so I need to, uh, I'm going to be late for school if I don't leave now. I want to make sure I'm there in time to see the new folks coming in. So I excused myself and, and went to school. And the, the, the first day, and I guess maybe that wouldn't be too unexpected, was just an exciting time for all of us. We were, we all gathered in the gymnasium and started talking about sports the cheerleaders started exchanging cheers with each other, uh, you know, getting getting to know each other. I, I still can't imagine what it was like on the other side for the black students coming into our school. I mean, I know all I've read about that and what people have shared with me, but you know, my parents are parents are trying to scare me about them, and I, I imagine I can't imagine the uncertainty and the apprehension they had coming in. To that so and that was part of what I was thinking at the time I think yeah so when you said everybody was getting together and all of that was it mixed black and white or whether white yep. doing their thing and the blacks doing their thing well uh, we were coming in in the separate groups and then as folks started coming in and few people would get kind of courageous and from both sides and step across and say uh, here's a cheer we do and you know what do you think the football team's going to do this year? And, you know, and, and what kind of music do you, are y'all listening to? So y'all just, y'all just, the kids took care of it. Again, I've learned enough about things not to just fear the way my parents tried to do. So I, I didn't carry the burden of hate and the fear thing wasn't ringing true to me. So I was curious and excited about the music thing too, you know, being able to talk with folks and learn things there. Wow. Okay, so let's fast forward. Where and how did you decide to study race and racial inequities? Yeah. So some so key let me go back to a little bit key moments in my life. Uh, number one, I was I'm, I was so shy. I'm still a shy person, but I was so shy, just debilitatingly shy at times. And so, excuse me, the being in the suburbs in, in Kansas, the schools were very large. Very difficult time for me to make friends. Uh, 
I would get to school in the mornings and walk around the halls and walk real fast like I was going to a particular classroom and do that until the bell would ring to be in a class. And I had so moved from that environment to the small town in, in Arkansas. And so people would be continual. This is a town of 8,450 students in the, in the high school. So people were driving by continually to try to get a look at us. You know, who's this new person coming in? Because we never have new people. So the, you know, that was a totally different experience for me with people wanting to know me and reaching out to me. And people reaching out to you, white, black, both? White. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely white. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, and again, that was the year a year before the school was school going to be segregated. I think there was news of that occurring until uh, the end of the year before, probably to you know keep tensions down. But uh, so a, a piece of what happened then the the, re, the reason I'm mentioning that is I started coming out of my shell a bit. You know, people that were I could be friends with. I had so coming where these people really appreciated me and all was a totally different feeling. Uh, and one of the things that that my football coach, well, my coaches would do of me is uh, use me as a person then to uh, greet people under the team to support. Them. Folks, they knew I was going to be an ally for folks. I won the sportsmanship award for the school the two years that I was there in athletics. No. And I guess what I had learned out of my separation was kindness. You know, I didn't have the best social skills or whatever, but when I was on the outside of, of things, which was most of the time, you and I have talked about this, I would see who was out there outside the circle with me and study that, think about that. And that led me to, you know, wanting to reach out to people who were black coming into the school. It led me to want to reach out to people I'd see sitting outside on a bench by themselves at lunch. Things like and uh, so the senior I was elected class president and the, the person that lost was the quarterback of the football team that I played with, but he came up to me at the end of the election and said the only reason that I won was I got the end vote. And he thought that was gonna be hurtful, but that wasn't. And, and that also was just affirmation, affirmation to me that we can reach across, even though there are a lot of people that want to get in the way of that happening and do their best to sabotage us when we do you know what my football coach did and pairing me up with the black players with my locker next to theirs I think was him uh being very aware of some of that yeah so you grew up shy and outcast not part yeah. of and then you moved into a new town where somehow or another people were able to reach out and appreciate you and then because you had been so such an outcast, you studied other outcasts. Right. And when you saw that black kids also outcasts, you yeah. reached out to them because you knew what that felt like. And then you yeah. gained a reputation as someone who could bridge across these two divides. Yeah. And yeah. somehow in the process of that, 
there were enough white kids who recognized your value and certainly the black kids that you actually became class president and won yeah. sportsmanship awards. Yeah, the shyest person in, in the school before. And, and my friends talked me into that. I never would have even thought of doing something like that. You know, so. so you got prestige yeah. for reaching out across, across the symbolic aisle. The VOA. And then we moved forward to college, which is again back to the big place, and then I regress. Oh, you did back. regress. Yeah. Yeah, college was tough. Socially, very, very where, tough. Where were you in college? University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. Okay, okay. And I, I had some other small schools I could have gone to. I, I had a scholarship at, at one, but I also had a scholarship at University of Arkansas. And I wanted to. Get, I, I needed to get away from my family mm-hmm. and move into that environment. But, but University of Arkansas was a, a regression in a lot of ways. Uh, very, very, very few black students. They didn't start, uh, I think the first black football player at University of Arkansas, 75, 77, and the 75, I think, was a walk-on person. He was used as a tackling dummy, for real, by the coach for people doing to practice tackling. Uh, so th- there were by my junior year, there were two or three other walk-on football players in the dorm where we were, but they were very isolated. I was always very cordial to them, but they kept their distance and we kept our distance. So, you know, college was a big, big regression in uh, understanding race and making connections there. I remember sitting, I would go around, the, the, the campus there is beautiful, tons of trees. Trees. So I would go sit in trees at times and just watch what was going on on the campus. And the only, we had no, you know, this is Vietnam War, civil rights, all this going on during that time. And we had no, the only thing we had protests against was not being able to play Dixie at the homecoming football game. And I was sitting in a tree just watching all that and just. <laughs> How is this? Why is this? I don't, I don't get this. Yeah. Well, how did you, what, why did you even know to have this thought? Yeah. Uh, so go back a bit, but something happened is when I was in college that then really altered my thinking about things as well. And that was, uh, so he and two of his friends had been sent by the company they worked for out to supposedly develop new territories. They were come, all three of them started to work with the company at the same time. They were all buddies in the Navy uh, and came back together. And they were about six weeks from when they would hit the 25 year mark, which uh, meant that their retirement pension was guaranteed. This is way before ERISA and all that. And what the company had done is they sent those three guys out telling them, we're going to develop you. You're going to be a supervisor out there. You're developing the territory. But on the same day, six weeks before they would be eligible to, for their pension, the company fired all three of them. Oh, my word. Yeah. So it was devastating to my father. Yeah. He, uh, but that was 
that was a big lesson for me. You know, I, I, the schooling I took was because I was a messed up kid and I needed help figuring out who I was and how to be healthy and how to get along with people, how to develop good relationships that I could anchor and, you know, how not to be so shy, those kinds of things. So taking the counseling and the, and the psychology courses and things like that, that was about trying to find out who I was. I had no, so when that hit, when that happened to my father, that confirmed to me, I'm not doing this, go to work somewhere in 30 years and expect they're going to take care of me. You know, all I got to do is just keep my nose to the grindstone, mind my own business, and you'll take care of me. So I was way ahead of the curve. And so I knew I wanted to do something that would help me continue more on the path that I looked for when I went to got to Circe and felt what that felt like to have those kind of relationships and to what kindness and equity. I didn't have the term equity, but the kindness piece for me was really around equitable treatment for everybody that was in my range of behavior. And so I started moving much more towards thinking about uh, social work, you know, doing things like that than being in a business setting or an engineer or things like that. So you're talking about still in college, correct? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Okay. It was my junior year when that, going into my junior year when that happened. So what that did is, if I'm, if correct me if I'm not getting it, but what that did was lead you to challenge authority. authority Absolutely. Authority lost its meaning for you. Absolutely. Uh, well, authority lost its meaning, especially trust in authority. Trust in authority. Nobody's going to tell me. Yeah. Just trust me. I'll take care of you on that. No, 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 no. No, thank you. And I got my friends here around me on the times that I had friends. And, and the people on the outside of the circle that I'm aware of here. And you're not going to do it to them either. Okay. So you extended, you extended, you automatically extended me and my friends. Absolutely. Because that's who, that's who I had been with mentally, emotionally. Those are the people I've been with mentally, emotionally most of my life. Not the cool cats and the ones that have the expensive clothes and cars and stuff, you know. So we were very, very low on the, we were like at the bottom of the middle income group. I mean, we had, we had enough money to do everything we needed to do. Absolutely no privation at all. But we weren't hot stuff, you know. <laughs> we, were, we were people that the a lot of people look down on. Okay, know. so authority cannot be trusted, but so far I empathize with, belong with the semi outcasts, the cool, the cool kids. I'm not going to, I'm not part of that. And yeah. I will defend, I will defend that those like me against uh, uh, an authority that can do something like that to my father. Yeah. And it wasn't like I was making a physical threat. It was, I need to learn enough about this kind of stuff. So I can do this without physical confrontations. Whoa. Because I'm, I'm not, I mean, playing sports, I, I love, I mean, tackling was my favorite thing in football. <laughs> I, I didn't mind hitting people. It was kind of cool to do that stuff, but I, I was never a fighter. I didn't want to fight. Yeah. That doesn't do any good. So it was more understanding. And, and I, again, I didn't have this word for a while yet, early in college, uh, but empathy was what I was 
trying to get to? How can I understand people well enough that I can support them, understand where their obstacles are and the, the things that hurt them so I can see what, I, I, what, what kind of support I can provide? Wow. And so you were aware that that's what you wanted to do in college. That got trick. That got started for okay. you in college. <laughs> so uh, the thing I, I left out is I got the University of Arkansas psychology department seemed like, you know, maybe it was in the year 1874. And I got, uh, I started taking history courses, mm. a lot of history, German history and things like that and uh, on Fridays I would get to go to the library and get books for a week I read like crazy I was an only child with bad social skills so I read 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 and so the librarian got to be a friend and I'd go in and, and she started understanding me a bit and I think read some of that in me so she gave me lots of books on history and at some point I, I, I don't remember how this happened but uh, she said, I have something else for you this time. It's a little harder to read, but, but this is something I, I, I want to give to you. And she gave me a very, it was a very simple book on the subject, but it was about the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 that was, she gave me that one on a trip I was taking with my father. So I really had a chance to read it and think about it. And we stopped it. I had read most of the books that I had already about half to two thirds to the trip. So we stopped, dad stopped at a bookstore for me and I found a paperback book on the Holocaust. And I just totally digested that as well. And so that left me with, again, you know, going back to how people were treating black people, that led me back to more questions around how does this inhumanity happen? I want to understand this. So, so I took some German history. Uh, I took German in college, actually, because I was trying to understand what can make that kind of thing happen. Um, so that was all that stuff coming together. I, then the history teacher was just amazing. Winthrop Jordan's book, White Over Black, mm-hmm. was our book for that first course with him. And what that opened up to me in understanding racism and prejudice against skin color and how that occurred from an economic foundation, uh, that that got me. And that's college. That's college. That totally got me. So, so So then I start putting together the thinking about the Holocaust and how that could happen. And then the, you know, the, what I'm reading around slavery and leading up to that in, in Winthrop Jordan's book. And then the other thing was, that's really interesting about Kansas at the time, and I, I, but huge legacy of culture of the Native American tribes that were in that area. I mean, museums and things and watching language, if you're talking about that and being respectful of, of certain things. So, so by now I've, got, I've, I've, I've been given kind of three pieces of a puzzle. How could there be that respect for Indian culture and Indian peoples when same as the Holocaust? Yes, genocide. Yeah, so, so that's then 
all that's going on. And then I graduate college trying to find a job and find it, the only job I can get with my bachelor's degree in psychology is in Houston. And it's uh, being a cottage parent at a children's home where the children have been taken from their families because of abuse or, or uh, neglect. And so now I get to totally move away from my parents, 500 miles. And so then I really, then my life started. Your life started. Yeah. So did anything- so My life that belonged to me started then. So who did you become, Mark? What was, what was now different? Yeah, um, I think it's, it was deepening learning and deepening understanding. So I'm 22 years old and I now have 12 sons that I'm responsible for at the juvenile home. 24 hours a day because, and because it was difficult to get replacements often. And uh, I think that over the two years that I was there at the home, I had two young men that were white, all the other folks in my college were either Latinx or, or African-American. And so hearing the conversations, hearing the stories, recognizing what their worlds were, what they'd been through and all, and you know, trying to take all that in. As a cottage parent, your counselor, doctor, uh, friend, disciplinarian, I mean, there's, you know, tutor, uh, confidant, you, you, you you're wearing so many hats, you, you don't know which hat you got on at one time. And so a really neat lady that trained me, who'd been doing that work for a long time, excellent cook. And so I started getting to have, getting to be responsible for that and understanding cultures and differences and, and that kind of stuff. And understanding the dynamic of people who have been damaged and hurt and, and what accountability there is if you're taking on those kind of roles for people that have been through that. And, and the funny, so $300 a month plus room and board. That's what you got paid. That, that was my pay. <laughs> and so room and board was, I had a room in the cottage like the kids had a room in the cottage. So uh, on my days off, I was usually too tired to go anywhere and I didn't know anybody in Houston at the time. So I would be real quiet, had headphones, I'd listen to music a lot, read, just try to relax. But I got to where I'd listen to them a bit because two of the knuckleheads uh, could absolutely imitate my voice. Not just Wait, I want to say, hang on a minute. I just want to caution people who- Imitate my voice. Yeah, no, I want to caution people listening because knuckleheads is a specific is a word that Mark oh, uses frequently across yes. gender, race, age, yes. everything. He's not labeling the kids anybody. He's no, it, it's it's an affectionate term for we all we all were human, and uh, kids called me that had permission to to call me that. So, so I'm listening. I'm, I'm listening to him and the two that are really good, they're doing imitations of me, but not just of me. They're quoting some of my speeches to them during the week when they've gotten in trouble or I'm fussing at them or I'm asking them to do these kinds of things. And the guys around them are just cracking up. They're having so much fun with them doing it. And at first I'm, I got, wow, that's shouldn't be doing that. 
Miss Hazel would say, you can't play with them. The one that taught me to, to, to be a cottage parent, you can't play with them. You must maintain respect at all times, blah, 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 blah. And then I heard um, uh, the one kid that was just so good at it, at doing me, and I yelled at him, I'm in here. Because they didn't, they could never tell whether I was in the cottage or not. So, and then they got quiet. It was quiet for a couple hours, and then they started it again. And I said, I hear you. And so, stopped again. The next time I was off, I talked with them the night before, and I said, I really, I'm sorry I, I yelled angrily at you guys the first time I heard that. Um, and I tell you, I'm enjoying it. And at the end, so I was apologizing to them for how I had acted regarding that. And I said, what's it going to take for me to do so the things that you're telling each other when I'm not here, that we can talk about those together? Well, uh, Well, I started crying. Wow. Shoot, I always have a tough time with this. They said, no one's ever ap apologized to us, Mr. Mark. And yeah, let's start talking. So that, yeah, it's just so powerful. I, I I eventually took over taking running the athletic program. What I'm understanding is that you started, you learned how to facilitate honest, difficult discussions, yeah. working with this mixed race of kids who, like yourself, had been outcasts and were outcasts. But the, the, you know, the other thing is I, I did something I was told you shouldn't do. Don't be vulnerable. These, are, these can be manipulative children. Part of the reason that they're, they were beaten, they were doing bad things. Yada, there's always these stories around that. And I wasn't buying that. So, and, and they heard that in, in what I said. You know, I said, so how do we talk to each other then? I, I want to do that. And I'd love to hear you imitate me as we do it, but how do we talk together? You say this apology meant something to you. What do we do? And what do we do with that? So back on, depending on what was going on, depending on things that might be, we started recognizing what stress points might be for them, different things at school going on or difficulty with their relationships with their girlfriends and stuff. So we, we kind of shifted around depending on what was going on. And it was okay for them, for them to come and, just obviously talk with me one-on-one -on -one about whatever they want. Yeah. You have a gift, Mark. And I just wish I knew, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm hoping it will, your gift comes out, that they, why they felt you, they could be honest with you. You're talking about it a little bit, but you're talking about empathy and vulnerability yeah. as two of the keys that you have. You... Yeah. As a young white man, are willing to be empathetic and vulnerable. In contrast to, I'm sure you had peers who were not. Oh yeah. 
you know, the hard thing about working in a place like the juvenile home is leaving with such caring about the people that you had in your life when you're there and then not knowing what happened to them. Were they able to live better lives as a result of something there or that? And I had opportunity to learn that. Um, I was jogging at Herman Park one day and um, as I'm running down the trail and looking ahead, I see a young man jogging towards me. And we're both looking at each other like we know each other. So we pull off to the side of the track and start a conversation. And I told him, you know, it's right at the tip of my tongue, but I can't remember who you are. And he told me he'd been at the juvenile home when I was there and what his name was. And I went, oh, my goodness, because he was one of the key young men that helped keep the, the juvenile home to be a good place. How um, and he talked with me about how much the treatment that I, how I treated him and the other young men in the home meant to them, that they weren't used to being treated like they were adults, that they could make choices, those kinds of things, and that there was some genuine caring there about what happened to them. But part of it just, uh, he was sharing that he, went to the military, went through officer school and was doing really well and just so thankful for my part in that occurring for him. Uh, again, I was just blown away by that. Wow. So, okay, let's look at what's happening here. You're working with a group of outsiders. You have that empathy and that vulnerability that you bring to bear on this experience. Contrary to the advice of the wiser people who tell you don't do that, you bring your empathy and vulnerability and make a difference in those kids' lives. Yeah. So that they know that you believe in them. 25 years later, they know that. 25 years later, and they remember it. I want us yeah. to hang yeah. on to what happened in that juvenile home because yeah. I see so much parallels between how you work with adults in the corporate sector. Well. Yeah. So much parallel. So I want to get there. But first, we got to figure out, learn how you started studying and really getting engaged with race. Yeah. Well, the genesis of it was the home with the boys that were there, the young men that were there. I had the 12 to 14 age group uh -huh. right next to me was the 14 to whatever age that had to leave the home or whatever. So, so uh, I just started learning a lot about how they talked and what they liked. And, you know, I'd get up each morning, school mornings, and I'd cook them brec uh, breakfast, scrambled eggs and bacon and things like that. And so we'd have conversations around the, the table. What would you be eating if you were at home? And, you know, what do you like to do in the morning? What do you want to do this weekend? What can I fix you? And so, I mean, food and then what, what music you guys listening to today? And they'd say, and they say, well, we know you buy music. What, what have you got? Can we listen to that? So just those kind of conversations with them were ongoing. And then in the gym, just, again, watching, especially in the dating relationships, how they behaved with each other and what was important to them and what respect was and what disrespect was. You know, visually seeing that time and time again, what made them want to fight? What made them want to cry? What made them laugh so hard? I wasn't just their cottage parent anymore. I was somebody that was a bigger part of the life they had there on the campus. Because when 
So Mark, you then had a chance to interact and break through that few white people get a chance to do. Oh, yeah. You were in a 24-7 living environment with yes, people who were culturally different from yes. you and each other. And, and who's tr gaining whose trust was not even a normal thing. But, but, but in some ways, you know, I think if you do the right things in that situation, if you're lucky enough to, then you get um, more of a reaction than you would outside that. Because they have been so hurt and, and to feel somebody have the empathy and, and treat them like a man. When you do those things, for folks who've been through that, that's so rare that, yeah. And I know, you know, there, there, there could be at times they play me a bit, obviously, but, but those, those got to be very rare. That, that's the main thing first to hear is it's not their zoo animals and I'm studying them for how to figure out what, how to talk with them different than I would talk with someone else. So it's around not judging, it's around asking questions and being real clear going into the conversation with them. Look, we've been here before. Remember where we had difficulty? We worked through that. How do we get back there? Do we start here? Do we start where? Let me ask you some questions to make sure I'm understanding what's happening here. These aren't meant to be gotcha questions. If you hear a gotcha question, let me know that. And so working through that and then seeing, well, so, what do you see same different in what happened this time from the last time and where we wound up with that? So asking questions like that and giving, and giving them a, a, some accountability for awareness. So, okay, so I want to get to Center for the Healing of Racism. Yeah. Why did you go? What did you learn? Yeah, well, so the, from the juvenile home, I, I left there... Uh, I resigned because of some actions a new director was taking. And so I was bouncing around for a while. And one of the main things I learned at the juvenile home <clears throat> was if I want to help folks, I need to be healthier myself. Still a lot of difficulty from who I was as a child growing up in the teenage years and all. So I needed to take care of that. And so a lot of reading uh, that I was doing and decided that if I also wanted to make more than $300 a month, I needed to go ahead and get my a master's degree. So again, not knowing exactly where I wanted to go, I said I took the route of um, let me get a master's degree in counseling education. And, and so I did that, and that led to a number of different places I worked, uh, lots of, of – work with people who were different races and, and those kind of jobs too. So those all led me to realizing a lot of people don't know what to do about racism. I'm one of them, but you know, I'm actually pretty well off on this. And so how can I further that? And uh, oh, I can't remember Robert's last name, uh, reporter for the Houston Chronicle was uh, regularly writing articles on the Center for the Healing of Racism's Dialogue Racism series, which is probably how you heard about it, I, I would imagine. So said, hmm, let me go there and 
you know, figure out how I can help all these other people that don't know what they're doing around race. Yes. <laughs> so that, that's how I got there, Gene. <laughs> and, and met you this, uh, went through the session once, asked if I could go to a second session. They said, you, you want to come back and go through it again? Uh, absolutely. Can I do that? Well, yeah. And can I help? I so is it okay if I come in? I usually can get off that day and I can be here in time, have everything set up for you. I remember you moving chairs. Yeah. Okay. So that's what led to that. So what did you learn there? You learned enough to come back. Oh, I learned. You know, I said, when I left my parents, my life began. When I, when I stepped into that room, my, even with the stuff I've said, like, you know, my learning on racism began. And what did you learn? <sighs> yeah, internalized racism, unaware racism. The how to what it means to be an ally, um, how to do healing of myself on some of the things that that I went through. Um, before I got to that, uh, well, there are two pieces that really lead up to that. One is you know I haven't talked about this, but I don't know how to explain what happened with me in my life except to say that I was guided. You know, I, 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 the, the series of places that I went, each place like in a sequence of allowing me to be a healthy person and, and feel that I have some ability to make a better world. There's no way to, to how those things occurred could have happened without some guidance. So I, I you know, at, at times I have felt very strongly that I've had a guardian angel in my life that got me through things. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I might have not made it out of Kansas City. I, I was close to taking my life there. Wow. As a teenager, you know, just uh, depression, not knowing, you know, my only ability to reach out to folks who see playing sports. I just didn't know how to connect. I didn't know what to do about those things. So I, I, I think, uh, and I think my guardian angel has some connections back to the Holocaust as well. So, and I know for some people that's kind of laughable, but very serious about it. And, and I'm not, I'm, you know me, I'm not an organized religion person. I'm, I am spiritual and very, spirituality is very important to me. Uh, the other thing, the funnier part of it is whenever I do something, here's my word, whenever I do something really knuckleheaded, I get an immediate feedback. You know, I get a response that lets me know that, uh, yeah, you didn't have that one right. So so that that's a piece of it. I felt I was guided getting through. I finally got into graduate school. I get through graduate school, you know, and so the dial of racism was like a final piece for me. And my parents had gotten very fed up with me over the years with the kind of work that I was doing. And so I'm, I'm coming out of college with my psychology degree, which I think is worthless, and it's proving to be that. And I do the juvenile home thing and, and 
have a few years doing all kinds of agency and social related work. So that just wasn't working for them. They didn't like my friends. My friends still were more people of color um, and people who are gay in particular. So uh, they said I was no longer their son. They disowned you? Oh, yes. Because yes. of the people you were associating with? Yeah, yeah. And you didn't do what they wanted you to do with your career? But even though we had bad relationships, um, you know, they were my parents. So that was still tough. And, and so that was part of what I was able to work through in, in with the dialogue racism stuff. And in particular, I got to start uh, helping facilitate sessions. I was invited to do that. And we started having weekend sessions that we put together. And so I could help plan those and usually had a small part in those. But in those sessions, I was more in the circle myself in wanting to go through that experience without having to go back and forth. And so I had one of those in particular uh, that really, through all the learning that I got there, Gene, so I had volunteered. So I got to be the kind of guinea pig through the session for going up in front of the group and working through pieces that we were talking about. And so at the end of all of this, uh, part of what for people who are white going to something like that is owning being white, owning what that means in terms of the history, owning that without just going to guilt and acting all helpless and making you take care of me. So going through all those kinds of things, owning that I'm white, saying that out loud. I just had tingles as I said that. The, the, this particular session was uh, over on a Sunday, probably 7, 7.30. The last thing we did before the regular closeout, I had finished doing my work up in front of the group. And so the gentleman turned to me and said, one final thing for you to do. And I went, oh, Lord. <laughs> and he said, I want you, starting with me, to walk up to each person. I want you to shake their hand, and I want you to say, hi, my name is Mark, and I'm white. Okay, my name is Mark, and I'm white. 50 people I did that with. Probably over half of them I knew from the Dialogue Racism series. The other half were new to me. And so I'd go each one. And the emotions, by the time I got through the 50, with some folks I cried, with some I'd laugh, with some I was just feeling a bit of an empathy connection. You know, it was almost 50 different responses around the room that I felt as I did that. And when I went home that night, three hours sleep, up in the morning full of energy for two months. I was going by on three or four hours sleep a night and not being the least bit tired during the day. The, the garbage that I cleansed from my system that had been put in me through all the years of things and that I contributed to myself, I, I released so much of that through that weekend and all that led up to that. That was all that led up to that was for me to be ready to do that in that weekend. Okay, Mark, you're talking to people who have no concept of why that would be uh, right. energizing rather than shameful. Please explain right. that difference. Right. I, I, 
I don't want to speak for my people, so I'm speaking for myself. For me, oh, hearing the story. So the Dialogue Racism series is eight weeks. It handles all different topics of racism. And it, so, it, pardon me? I went through it. Yes, well, I'm saying this for yeah. the people that are hear, hearing me. So uh, there's a specific topic each week for the two hours. So it could be on a, a, a combination of unaware and internalized racism because those feed off each other. So there's an hour of education talking about what those are, examples, yada, yada, working through that. So the next hour is either in the full group, depending on how many people are there, or in split out groups, people are given one to two questions that you answer regarding your own experience around those. So for me, unaware racism as a person who's white, that would be the assignment. For you, internalized racism as a person who's black, that's what you're doing. And so we're going through that. So you're hearing stories that just unfathomable what people have been through. A young woman who, a black woman sharing, who was told she could no longer play with her white friends because it was time for them to start going different ways. Children over this age didn't play with each other with those colored skins. She went into the medicine cabinet a couple mornings later and took her father's straight razor out and was getting ready to peel the ugly black skin off her face because she knew there must be something white and pretty under there that would let her play with her friends again. And her, her father walked in as she was standing, looking in the mirror, holding the straight razor and said, baby, what's going on? And so she shared and whew. so those are the kind of things you're hearing. And I'm sitting here in those things going, Lord, 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 I thought I knew what was going on here. And I, and I knew some pretty rough stuff from the juvenile home and different things that I was doing, believe me, but oh my goodness. So sympathy, no, 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 no. That, that means you have, you not only carry your own weight of, of that, you now carry my weight because you're supposed to make me feel okay. And so the biggest thing, and, and that means I can listen to people say racism. That means I can listen to the words white privilege. It means when I hear those kinds of things, I don't get angry. I don't feel sympathy. I don't want to go hide my head like an ostrich in the ground. That I'm ready to talk about those. I want to talk about those. I need to talk about those. People need to talk about those. We don't. What I experience still with people who are white is racism and privilege are the two words that scare us most and the two words that we absolutely must talk about. Okay, so we are talking about the difference between sympathy and empathy and guilt. So I, I was able to go, and I, as I was in the Dialogue Racism sessions more, I got invited to speaking engagements that we would go to. And I remember going to the first one that I went to was with, uh, and I need to say race here, uh, one of the black facilitators in the, in the program. Uh, and we were invited to uh, a, one of the clubs in, in Houston to talk about racism and, and what we needed to do and, you know, how can white people help? All those kinds of questions. So, so we were invited to the club. I got up to speak. Right. We were invited to the club and I, I got up to speak. I did my thing about why I had gone there, what I'd learned, in particular about how important it was for people who were white to speak and be part of this. So 
the person that I was there with, who was African-American, got up to speak, to hear things from his perspective. And he was amazing. Uh, could tell the impact he was having with folks. So we finish up and uh, the guy that's emceeing, it says, so can you all hang around just for some questions for a bit? And we both said, yeah, sure, we'll do that. I was driving because I figured I was going to be carrying the much lighter load. Uh, <laughs> so I had, I, I don't remember, what, maybe two people, I think it was only one person came over and talked with me for a moment or two. And there is a line, I, I mean, I counted, it was 22 people that were in a line to talk to the gentleman that I came there with who is black. And I'm, I'm sitting where I can hear a good part of the conversations with each one. And each conversation is a variation on a theme. And the theme of the conversation was, you know, I was in this situation the other day with a person who is black. No, that, that's not how they would say it. But I was in, in, in a situation the other day with, with an African-American person. And here's what happened. So they did this, and I said that, and then this kind of happened, and then, you know, I wasn't sure. I couldn't tell by the look on the face and yada, yada. So how did I do? You know, uh, was that okay? Did I say something wrong? You know, uh, you know, I, I really, my heart was in the right place. I just was confused. I didn't quite know what to do. And so the gentleman from the Center for the Healing of Racism would talk through a bit and say, well, here's what you could have done. This, you know, those are tough situations. So he had empathy for them. 22 times, it was a variation on that same conversation. Each time that happened, he shrank. I can imagine. I'm, he I'm shrank. Things being Literally shrank. His shoulders would drop more. His knees would start to buckle. His coat was looser on him. By the end of that, oh my. And so I was I'm really a guardian angel. You know, I'm really glad I thought to drive for that. I, I, you know, that was very conscious that I wanted to do it. I didn't know what was going to happen intellectually, but my gut was saying, you need to drive. He, he's going to be carrying more back than you are from this. And so we talked. And I said, man, that that's what that's like when you're in those groups, isn't it? He said, yeah, I really, I have to prepare myself, but your, your last blog was around going high versus low. Yes. That, is that an example of that? Uh, that that's what he was trying to do. But so it was an all white European American group that we're talking with. So, so, you know, there's all kinds of things there, but, but he didn't, he never got, he never demonstrated frustration. He never cut people short. You know, the high, that's the high point. I agree, there, there had, there, and there is better ways to do that now. But again, this was probably 93. Yeah, yeah. it was new. No, people didn't know how to do what you were doing. You yeah. were braving a new trail. Yeah. So, so that's, I don't remember where we, where I got to from that, where we go back to from that. I think that was a question you asked me. You went in, you yep. went around the room, 50 people, and right. energized, not deflated. Let's right. get past the two scenes. 
why were you energized in this situation and he was depleted in this other? Yeah. But let's start with you. Why were you energized? Yeah. I was able to release a lot of things I needed to release without making someone else account the, the way that I had to do that. The people that came to run the session knew the questions to ask and the experiences to take me through and, and all that so that they're not carrying a load with it. That's a contract with them. And all of us in the room are figuring out how we can listen to each other and help heal and not go places where we're giving somebody else the accountability to take care of us as we do that. And so that was a very different thing for me. And, and, and what I was working on was releasing poisons and toxins that were in my system from, oh, my, I was never good enough for my parents. Never good enough. But why would saying I'm white is is the, you are you saying saying I'm white fifty times helped release that? Yes. So Ricky Ricky Cheryl over Marcuse. We are hurt because uh, I can't. What, what do you remember the quote? We are hurt because we have been hurt ourselves. It, yes. There's a line from Ricky Shiover Marcuse. It's just very powerful. Um, and, and her 10 tenets around uh, unlearning racism, anti-racism are, are just amazing. And, and so I think the for me, it was going back to the earliest memories of race with my parents and the nasty language and stories and things. And, and I've said, I could do some critical thinking with that and that, um, you know, I, I understood it at, at some level. That's those messages are still in there. Those were my parents saying those to me for 22 years. Well, you know, I wasn't understanding it when I was born, but for the time that, that I, I was using language and whatever, those are the messages around what's dangerous, what's right, what's wrong, what's safe, what's scary. Those are the, the, the messages that get implanted. And it's not, and teachers, you know, I haven't talked about teachers in the school systems and segregated school system for children who are white and what we learn there regarding history and then discover as we move out. So there, there's the, the church. Part of the reason I did not want to go to the church was I did not like what was being said about other people. So, and just started refusing to go to church. Uh, so th there are all those things that are in there. And I, I still worry. I, I had a lot of concussions playing sports and all. And I, I'm so worried at times that some of the stuff is going to come back out of me. I work, I, I try hard at, letting still trying to get that stuff out. And sometimes I think it's still there, Gene. You know, some of that conditioning and the language comes out. No, I said it's implanted. I'm just agreeing with uh, you. Yes, yes. Uh, yes. So, so not saying I'm white is saying I'm white and I'm okay. Is that the is that what you're saying? Basically, by the time of the fifty people, I'm white and I'm okay. I'm white and it's not toxic. I mean, what what's the rest yeah. of the sentence? 
the rest of the sentence is that I've forgiven myself I'm for all the things that I haven't done. I mean, and for me in particular, look at all the opportunities I had to do more. All the opportunities I had to learn more about racism and not get in a position of thinking I'm special because I work with kids at a juvenile home. You know, so, and again, it's my guardian angel going, hey, fool, Okay, but wake up here. I want the rest of the words. I'm white and I have forgiven myself. Right. Is that the rest of it? And I will, and, and this is my opportunity to continue from here in the same vein that I'm doing now. And I, and I commit to that. And the other place, we haven't talked about this part. Um, I will not cooperate. I will not participate in my own oppression. I, I quote when I do that, I cooperate in yours. And so that was the pledge. I think the final piece of that that came to me from, from that gene. That was what I was saying. And, and, and that's part of why I, I went to TSU. Right. Okay. Because, yeah, I've had, I mean, I got learning in that history, in the couple history courses I took when I finished college at University of Arkansas that were phenomenal and got me started on understanding some of this stuff. But, but so much of what I knew was through white people's eyes in white schools. And so Texas Southern is an awesome school. And they have had an excellent history department. It's an predominantly black, be sure and say. Oh yes, well the, the teachers that actually my prime teacher was European American. Okay. But yes, but the students. Historically black. Uh, there was one class I had in the thirty hours that I took that there was another white student in there with there. But that, what I was doing at age fifty, because I was fifty years old when I when I went back to TSU. Yeah. But for me. It, it was it, it was challenging myself. I, I want to see what I can do in this environment. What's how far have I come? One of the early and you know how are people going to react to me? And I'm going to deal with that, whatever that is. I'm I'm, ask, I'm I'm open with what I get. And oh my goodness, what an amazing experience, Gene! Amazing experience. Okay, so. Sorry. I, okay, I want to I want to close two loops here. Yeah. First is, I'm white. I forgive myself. I have an opportunity to move forward with new eyes. I'm just trying right. to fill in the words of what yeah. what you were saying, as yeah. you're, and I have a, a opportunity now to make a contribution in this arena. Was that yeah. part of it also? Yeah, and then what you reminded me of, I will not participate in my own oppression. Okay, I was pleased. That's, that was the second loop I wanted to close. I wanted oh, okay. to say that okay. full phrase. And I quote yes. you all the time, Mark. Yeah. Do you know yeah. that that phrase is in my trainings? Wow. Well, it was, it was big for me. I will not participate. I will not cooperate in my own oppression. Because when I do that. I cooperate in yours. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and understanding what that fully meant. And that's, that's what I wanted to experience. Can I do this in a setting like TSU? Have I come far enough to learn how to do that? If not, take that learning, talk with people like you, the others at the center, and I'll continue working on that so that I can get there.
and, and I had a couple of very humbling experiences where we were given, we were, oh, instructors, they were cool. We were given a series of four books to read, going back to early book on Jim Crow and then up to some really cool stuff that was much more current in how things are really happening. And the third book, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the names of some of the books, but third book, I thought that was really, really good. And the black students in there were going, dude, are you the same person that was in here last week with us? And, and, and I did one defense of myself. said, but, but this, wasn't this like this? And why didn't you don't like that? No, that's part of the foundation. I'm going, whoa. And so I said, uh, uh, I'm going to shut up and listen. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that was what I was able to do that moment. And again, God, they were so nice to me. And again, it's who takes high, who takes low. If that had been a reverse thing, races reversed in that, that could could have played out very differently. But uh, I was able to continue, had good conversations with them. I was accepted in the classes. Actually, my last semester there, uh, I was nominated for the... Graduate History Student Award. Oh, you're kidding me. No. No. So you go about being vulnerable, empathy, emp empathetic, and open, and you get these awards. <laughs> and people think, oh, no, if I do these things, I'm going to be condemned. And Mark Hayes goes out and does this stuff and gets awards. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs>